Blog Talk Radio. Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up a bird, travel through time and space. So much to learn, so much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind and your heart. Gain new knowledge, get a fresh new start. Day Network will bring you there. So let's talk about it when life and on the air. Good morning, everyone. This is Fran Lewis. This is MJ Network in memory of my sister Marsha Joyce, whose birthday would have been tomorrow. So this is a special show dedicated to her, and this is a very special author. Sylvia True is here, and this is based on a true story that the author shares, her family struggle through the characters and the heartbreaking dealing with mental illness. This is what happened during World War II and the horrific things that happened to people. So good morning, Sylvia, and welcome to MJ Network. Hi, Fran. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. I am so excited. When I read your book, I, I couldn't put it down. It was tears in my eyes. I could not believe what people went through. So why did you decide to share this story and give us a brief plot, summary of the plot? Because this is so heartbreaking. Okay. Um, so a brief summary. It is based on my family's history, um, mm-hmm. mostly my grandmother's. My, both my families actually um, my father's side and my mother's side fled from Germany and Frankfurt. And my, in my, on my grandmother's side, my grandmother had a younger sister who she absolutely adored. And mm. this younger sister had some mental illness. Exactly what she had is not, has never been completely clear to me, although I've got, got some idea. And um, it was the time in 1934, there was, there was a huge eugenics movement around the world. And, and actually in 1934, they enacted these sterilization laws. And Rigmore, who that was her actual name, my grandmother's sister, was caught up in the tide of eugenics and the sterilization. And then, you know, that moved on to the euthanasia program. And it's interesting when you look at the history because if you look at what happened to the mentally ill in Germany at that in Germany at that time, it was really the Nazis' opening act because everything that was done to the mentally ill patients was then done in the concentration camps. It's like they practiced on them. The doctors constructed the gas chambers in the asylums. And then those same doctors were moved to the concentration camps and, you know, also constructed the gas chambers there. So it's a, it's a piece of history that's not as well known about the Nazis. Yeah. So there were, this was kept a, a huge secret from me um, and from everybody in the family. My mother knew, my grandmother knew, but there was, a, there was just so much shame and fear around it. And, you know, I think that certainly I felt the shame and the fear and the secrecy but didn't know what it was. And then mm. later when I struggled with some mental illness, it, it eventually, my, my grandmother and mother were, I would say, kind enough really to, to eventually share the secret, which was huge for me because it didn't make me feel so alone and like I was the only you know, black sheep in the family, that kind of thing. So that's sort of the outline of what happened in the family. I understand. My grandmother was in a Polish concentration camp. And oh, wow. I didn't, yeah, it was hard. I didn't know. And I couldn't understand why my aunt would call her by her first name. It didn't dawn on me that she was my step-grandmother until after she died. She was in a, they did sterilization so that people couldn't have children. Right. And all sorts right. of experiments, yeah. And she was one of those victims, and I had no idea. Wow. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, she's my grandmother, and I was named after my mother's real mother, and I never knew that either until not too long ago. So this is horrible, and people don't realize that what people went through. So you right. have it in 
two timelines. You have Wigmore's story. I, 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 I mean, it's just ten boxes of tissues. And then we have Sabine. Tell us about right. Sabine and why did she decide that she wanted to go to an, an asylum and she didn't realize that she had to give up her life and her family. That was that was heartbreaking. Right. Well, Sabine's story is based on my experience. And so I'll uh-huh. just give you a little background. And um, just so you know, you can ask me anything. I'm very open about this. And there are there's a reason I'm obviously very open about this because – I do think that's the way to sort of release shame, and also it was important for me that my daughters understood that we didn't carry on the secret and all of that. But um, I would say for me that it, looking back now and understanding what depression is, that I was probably depressed most of my life. But, you know, I was told to, you know, pull up my socks, have an assumption, get a grip, whatever, and my mother's side of the family was particularly afraid of any sort of mental illness because of what happened to Rigmore. So, you know, it was very important that, you know, I not show any weakness or any signs of this. So, so I felt extremely weak because, I, you know, life for me felt difficult because of depression. But I, struck, I you know, I got through and I struggled and I managed like many people do. You know, I didn't seek help. My family was, you know, really adamant that nobody ever go to a psychiatrist. You know, that was really foreboding. So um, I ended up getting married. And one of the reasons I ended up getting married was because I was really too frightened and didn't feel strong enough to live alone. And then I, you know, I was feeling, again, you know, like I was on a tightrope. I was always ready. I was always sort of feeling like it was going to fall off and I couldn't manage. So I thought, well, you know, the only way to fix this, I mean, this is what I thought. I was 24. You know, the way to fix this is to have a baby and that will cure everything. And, I mean, having a baby was the most wonderful thing, but it also sent me into a severe postpartum depression. And I think that it was particularly particularly severe because I had that was compounded with my depression so I you know I tried everything I could you know nothing worked and I was really slipping and I reached out to a psychiatrist and he saw me once for you know the first time for what half an hour and said yeah you need to be in a hospital and I Mm. went to the hospital um not understanding anything about or not knowing anything, obviously, about mental hospitals. And, you know, they they said you can't have your baby here, which, of course, makes sense, but I didn't even think about that. So that was, you know, that was particularly painful. But on the other hand, I did get better there. And, I mean, going there was the best education I ever got. And I learned about myself, about depression, and and then also about what had happened to the family. And I really do believe that, you know, a mother, you know, if you're a mother and you're not well, you have to take care of yourself first. I guess it's like putting on the oxygen mask on a plane. And once Mm -hmm. I got better, then I really do feel like I was able to be a very good mother. So that was, you know, that ended up being incredibly important for me. Well, there were two timelines, and there were staffs in both asylums that were different. And the one that assigned to Rigmore, he was lucky he wasn't standing in front of me. That That's how horrific that was. And right. how, how did they, yeah, I mean, I could not believe that. There were no safeguards. There were no people watching. There were no people that cared that these things were happening, it was like a secret, and the fact that they were able to euthanize and kill people is even more. And then they decided what the diagnosis would be, even if it was wrong. Right. Right. This, this, I mean, I took a class in special ed for my third master's, and we talked about Willowbrook and other asylums, and I thought that was bad. This was worse. I, I, could, I could not believe right. it. Right. I mean, right, the, the amount of lies and secrets that went on in you know, so, you know, and I know this is in the book, but um, so, for instance, like, you know, they would transport 
patients to the asylum that Brigmore was in. And right at the time of transport, they would euthanize them. And then they would wait a week or so and write letters home to the family, you know, and they would they would give some fault, you know, whether it was pneumonia or some kind of heart condition or whatever. And then they would explain that, you know, nobody could come and visit the asylum because mm. there was an outbreak of, you know, an infectious disease. And so, yeah, it was all, you know, they were all live and people were sent ashes. I'm sure they weren't sent the actual ashes of their loved ones because they, you know, would euthanize people in, in small groups then, you know, 15-ish. And, um yeah, I don't think the fam- I mean, I think the families believe that their loved one died from some other, obviously, some other kind of cause. This is this is sad. My niece's brother-in-law is in an asylum. He was in an asylum. I won't say which one. And they beat the, they beat him up, and he wound up with brain injuries. Oh and they God. went to court, and the courts sided against them because they said, oh, they tried to stop him from hurting himself, which is a lie. That's an even sadder. So the right. doctors treated people with mental illness. How in heaven blazes did they get away with eugenics and, this, and these treatments and these research? I, I cried. And when I, well, each person that went through something, I said, oh, my God, and there was nobody to defend them. And then this doctor right. says, well, I decide this, and this, this is the way it is. And the family had no right to tell, tell. How did they get away with this, and why eugenics? Well, so it, the eugenics movement was is a very interesting, you know, movement. It started in, you know, the late 20s, and there was a guy named Galton who was a cousin of Dalton. And um, it was actually something that doctors oh, and I think mostly doctors, but also, you know, regular lay people believed in around the world. It wasn't just Germany at that time. I mean, California had sterilization laws. And people believed that this was really a way to stop disease and, you know, we could have a healthier race, basically. And, I mean, all kinds of people in Germany, too, it wasn't just the mentally ill, you know, feeble-mindedness and, um, Huntington's and blindness and all, and even alcoholism, you know, people with those conditions were sterilized so that, you know, they wouldn't pass on those genes to the next generation. And I, you know, you know, as when the Nazis, the Nazis took it clearly to an obscene end, and I, I mean, when eugenics sort of got tied in with the Nazis, other countries really backed off and were like, yeah, we're not doing that, you know, because it, it, you know, they took it to this point where, you know, we're going to kill anyone with any kind of disease. And then, of course, the Jews, mm-hmm. and that was even a, a separate issue. So, you know, they had a fascist government and these people could, you know, make these, they made these laws and, you know, People obeyed them. I mean, it's crazy. And they really, you know, sometimes, you know, I know that this country, we've been going through, you know, our, our own kind of craziness in the past few years. But I'm mm-hmm. always thankful that there are checks and balances here. You know, even I know sometimes people are all like, you know, pointing fingers and blaming. But in the end, we have checks and balances, you know, and, and we have a two-party system. and or more than a two-party, but basically two parties. And that really does, I think, you know, help stop these kind of things from happening. You know what's really sad is my cousin is in an um, is in an assisted living. He's a paraplegic. Somebody, he had an accident and he lost his legs 50-something years ago. He's also one of the top oral surgeons in this world. And he's in this assisted living, and they basically don't care. If he was not cognizant of what was going on, forget it. I, right. I've never seen anything like it. It's horrible. I mean, when my mom was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, they said to me, the nurses in the hospital said, we're going to put her in a nursing home. I said, put yourself there because it's not going to happen. I went to 20, if I tell you so, 20 nursing homes. And when I came out, I was shaking. 
and I had brochures from each one, and then they started this meeting, and I said, which one would each one of you like to go to? Because I care about my mother. I went in debt a half a million dollars for her home care until I got full 24-7 and eight home health days. They don't care. That's what's really scary. It's it's frightening. So you said in in the book, the, was the doctor related the same one as Anne Frank? So okay, so the doctor, um, that doctor. I love Doctor Arnold. Me. No, that wasn't Arnold. So my was somebody father's else. father. Yeah, my yes. father's father, and that family also fled from Germany. He was a doctor, and he was a doctor of the Frank family and Anne Frank before they fled to Amsterdam. So in in psychology today, you wrote an essay about this, about mental yeah. illness. What did it have? And what was your focus? That's interesting. I love stuff like this. Um, so I think that the, really the focus is, and and what's important to me in my life as well is is about secrets and how damaging they can be. And, um, uh, you know, every family has a secret, right? I mean, some kind of secret. And in that way, I think, you know, the book can be relatable to many different people Mm -hmm. and many different families. And I do believe that, you know, these secrets and, you know, children who don't certainly don't know about the secrets, you can feel it. Um, It's in the the home culture and environment. And I think it's a very frightening thing um, for children. And I think that releasing those secrets and being as open and honest as you can be, I mean, sometimes there are secrets, you know, that people need to keep. Um, but really, I, I think it's really important to share them in the family. And I think for me, especially, you know, sharing the the secret of the mental illness, the shame of the mental illness was mm-hmm. incredibly helpful in raising my daughters. And both of my daughters have struggled with some depression and anxiety. And um, they never have felt shame around it. I mean, they gone to their psychiatrist, and when they needed medication, they got medication, and they live extremely full and productive lives. And they're just, there isn't the shame around it. And I'm also a I'm a chemistry teacher, and it's very important for me that my students, you know, talk a lot about my own issues, but but I will share things to show them that, there again, there's no shame around mm-hmm. this, and obviously there's mm-hmm. so much less shame than there was in the 1930s, but it's still there. I mean, I still feel it in school sometimes when, you know students out for mental health reasons, and especially in this past year, you know, there's been a lot of mental health issues, and I know there is. do feel, do still feel shame, and, you know, if I can help in any way with that by sharing my own story and talking about my daughters, then that's what I want to do, and it's very important to me. Well, I, I agree with you. I mean, I'm doing one um, a week from Thursday. Psychotherapist Dennis Palumbo and I are going to tackle anxiety attacks and panic attacks for people and how to deal with them. Because I feel with oh, this pandemic, yeah, I've done this before, but he's amazing and he agreed to do panic attacks. And his next book is coming out, it's on panic attacks. And it's, you know, my nieces get them and they take Xanax and not me, but they right. do. And they get it from their mother who gets high strung right away. And there are other ways to deal with it, but you know what? They have to deal with it in their own way. Everybody does. And there's nothing right. wrong with it. So right. tell us about Brigmore. How did she cope with this? How did she deal with being there? I mean, she really, my heart went out to her. There was, she had no recourse. She had nothing. No one helped her. Well, I think her sister, Inga, tried to help, and Arnold tried to help. And I, I love that man. Yeah, yeah, he yeah he was a great character, um, but I think you know it it was the time there wasn't the medication available like there is today. Yeah. I had you know speaking of panic attacks, that was the thing that I think for me set me into 
McLean, which is a psychiatric institution, more than anything else. I mean, panic attacks, mm-hmm. and when you don't understand what they are, they are so incredibly terrifying. I mean, you really feel like you're going to have a heart attack and you're going to die, and mm-hmm. it's just completely overwhelming. And had I understood in my 20s, and there was medication available then, had I understood that these that you could, you know, cope with these things, I might not have ended up in the plane. I don't know. Um, that there was medication to help that, you know, panic attacks last for, you know, a certain amount of time and then they subside. But, you know, I really felt like I was going crazy and I was going to die and it was just, it was so out of control. Mm. You know, so, you know, knowledge is, is just, knowledge just is so helpful in in the healing process, understanding these things, you know, which is great that you're having somebody come and talk about that. I think it's so important. It is. It is. Do you know there are other people in the story that I, the luck, like I said, they were lucky not standing in front of me. Baum was one and Richter was the other one. How did they rationalize what they were doing? Well, I think the eugenics movement helped. Yeah. Help. That's probably the wrong word, but the belief, certainly initially, that you know, the the human race would be you know better off if it was you know if diseases were taken away and from the human race. Also, there was the whole you know expenditure issue that they didn't have enough money to keep everybody hospitalized so I mean it sounds it was horrible like it was cheaper to you know use a nice page patients and have more hospital beds um yeah it, it, I think that's such a great question though in terms of you know not just what I'm writing about but in terms of so many things like how do people you know, rationalize doing these horrible things. And, you know, in the moment, they think that maybe they're doing the right thing. And, you know, hindsight, of course, tells us, like, oh, my gosh, that's certainly not the right thing. But, you know, they get swept up in the beliefs of the time, I think. No remorse whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, Arnold certainly, you know, well, he... He He did, yeah. he felt it, but yeah, no, I think some people didn't, and, and there are some really fascinating case studies about these doctors, you know, um, and how they believed in what they were doing. You know what's really scary is that I'm doing something, well, I want to announce it, Mr. I don't forget, on Monday we have Cindy McDonald maxed out. On the 18th, we'd afraid until I find you. Could you imagine going into your child's room and there's a child there and it's not yours? The 23rd, oh Alan, yeah, Alan Jacobson. I'm going to skip the 25th just for a minute. And on the 30th, the author, a famous French one player, through the door. And on the 25th, this was really mind-boggling. I had my second master's in reading, and the professor that taught me how to understand what people read. Un- beneath what they're trying to say to really get the meaning and the hidden definitions is Dr. George Cavuto. He's going to be on my broadcast on August 25th, and we're going to talk about something sort of related to this, the medicalization of education and why doctors are so quick to medicate students when they think that they're hyperactive or learning disabled when in reality they're poorly taught. That's my field of reading. So I, I am oh, thrilled. Yeah. I, I found him. Yeah, after 100 years, I found him. On LinkedIn, and he's excited too. So, you added a strong paranormal uh, belief in this one. How did you develop those? And is it clear that these paranormal visions that you hope that we what, what what do you want the reader to think? So, um, yeah, there's one character in the mental hospital yeah. who has visions of Rigmore, and there are a number of reasons I added that. Um, I'll just start with number one being that I do have very strong beliefs in the paranormal and I'm also a science teacher 
which I think some people feel like those two don't go together, but they actually do because I, I have done a lot of research both in reading an enormous amount of, about it and also in visiting many different mediums and psychics and learning a lot about them in my journey. Um, but it was important to me in the, in the writing of this book that Inga, who's Big Moore's sister and sort of the protagonist, that mm-hmm. that pushes against that boundary. The, the book has an arc about her, basically her becoming more open-minded and accepting of her past and also of being her granddaughter. And I felt like it was important that she be open to this as well. And one of the things, you know, I also always tell my students is only a closed mind is certain. So it's so important to be curious and to have an open mind. And it was shortly after I got out of the plane that I met a friend and it turned out that his mother was psychic. And I didn't believe in that. I come from a very scientific, you know, this very scientific Mm. background. And everybody was like, oh, that's total nonsense. But I went to see her and you know, I had enough, just a little bit of an open mind, enough of an open mind to say, I'm curious, you know, what is this about? And it opened up a whole new world to me, and it's been a fascinating, that aspect of my life has been a truly fascinating journey, and, you know, I've met some incredible people and some frauds along the way, too. So, um, I, you know, it's all about keeping an open mind to mental illness, keeping an open mind to things that we don't understand necessarily. We don't understand all of it, but, you know, being curious. And it was important, like you said, for Inga as a character to, to push that boundary, you know, with herself. And she does. She, you know, she realizes that in some ways, you know, her sister has always been with her. What about Frida? What was? Why did she? She was so fragile, Frida. She could really do nothing to help anybody. Right. I think that for her, um, she had a, a pretty closed mind, and um, she'd been hurt by, you know, her. She actually divorced, which was really uncommon in that time because her husband had an affair. She, mm. you know, I think Rigmore was her. I'm going to say favored child, and I think sometimes that happens when a child Mm. becomes ill for different reasons. You know, your attention, understandably, might go more to that child. And she did blame Inga for everything that went wrong. It wasn't Inga's fault, but Inga just tried everything she could to help her sister. But once Rigmore ended up in the institution in Nazi Germany at that time, there was pretty much, you know, that was going to be pretty hopeless. So uh, I think she was, Frida was, was, I, I love that you used the word fragile. Like most people wouldn't use that word. I think they see her as selfish, but I think it, it's the selfishness, if you want to call it that, that from being so fragile and being so hurt and losing a daughter, obviously. Well, I'm looking at the first scene and Sabine um, in the in the hospital, right? And um, I noticed that, and her, her first reaction must have been like, um, "I can't believe I have to give everything up." But if Rigmore, Rigmore, I'm looking at the pictures, and the pictures tell a story in their own selves. Rigmore never looked like she smiled the whole time. She oh, just looked so sad all the right. time that's in every picture. Yep, it's and that you know nobody. I I don't think anybody's ever picked that up before. She, I I and, told you this is this this is my professor. I told you. <laughs> but it's just really it's it's fascinating. Yeah, I don't think she did. She does always look sad, and I do think when you know when I pieced together mm. the bits and pieces of information I was given, it did seem like what she suffered from was. Yeah. You know, a major depression, and and I remember when I went into the plane, and my mother eventually, you know, came around and came to visit me. 
and um, brought pictures of me, actually brought pictures of me as a child to show me and to also show my therapist to show him me that I was always unhappy, like with the pictures of Rigmore. I mean, I think I always looked sad as a child. Thankfully, now I'm in my 50s, and I that's the furthest thing from the truth. So I'm, I'm a very fortunate person, but it's fascinating that you picked that up. I really appreciate that. Well, I'm looking at Frida's picture, too, and she looked very austere also. And Rigmore was beautiful. She was gorgeous. Yes. Yeah, and she looked I mean, like um, she looked like a little bit like like Frida, but Frida looked like she was somebody that you know wanted to run a, a house or a home or just in charge of something. It, it's amazing. It just this gives me right. the, it gives me the chills because it's, yeah, it's I, like her life. They put Rigmore there, and she had no say, and that bothers me when people have no say. That's it. Really, was worse. Really bad. So with what's going on now which is horrible, this pandemic, what, do you think people, more people are getting depressed and mentally ill and more people finding themselves that they need people to talk to? And how are, oh. we, how are we dealing with this now? I mean, it's serious. Because this is not, mental illness isn't going to go away, ever. It's always going to no. be there. It depends right. on how you recognize it and how you deal with it. And don't consider it right. a, a terrible stigma, but you deal with it. So what, what, what do we tell people? Right. I mean, and especially, like I said before, I mean, I'm a teacher, so I I see this in my students, and it's, you know, it's been mm-hmm. worrying many people. And my sister is a child psychiatrist, and, you know, often, you know, we often talk about, you know, children and mental health and, you know, how mm-hmm. it's really just exploded in the past year. I mean, she works at least 12 hours a day now. I mean, just trying to help children and their families. And, you know, and I again, you know, it's something that you just have to, and I think we are more, much more open in society to talking about it, but talking about it without shame, you know, talking about it like, you know, you have diabetes and you take medications and you go to make sure you eat properly it's it's the same kind of thing you know you have anxiety depression or or some other type of illness and medication Mm -hmm. can help to some degree but you know you often also need to have therapy with that and and take care of other things like your physical health you know walking is it makes a tremendous difference for people and my sister has reported that as well. 100% of her patients who have, you know, exercised and or walked through this whole pandemic do have absolutely done better. So, you know, there's a whole, there's a whole bunch of things that need to be done, and I think the best way to get to those things is to be talking about them, you know, figuring out what will help. I understand that. I had a student that came into my school. Um, I was the dean. And he came uh-huh. in, and I knew right away that he had a problem. Nobody recognized it. They just said he was violent. So he came in, and one day he looked at me, and he said, Mrs. Lewis, I'm going to commit suicide today. Oh. I'm, you know, and I, I said to him, okay, sit down and let's talk about it. And I made a phone call. I texted the guidance counselor so she, he wouldn't know, and they came up and they had to put him in four winds. And because I did that, they said that I saved his life. Because when he came right. back, they couldn't handle him. I don't know what it was that was basically wrong. He was violent. He couldn't face anything. So they had to have, actually, it's a sad part is they had to come up with a special program for him until they could place him in a special school, which they did. Every morning he came to visit me, and I had to have a cupcake, keep him happy. Then he they would go and he would go to computers and be fine. Then he would go to gym. Then he would come up and he goes, I said, I know you want your ice cream, and this is what I had to deal with until he he they they figured out what was wrong, and it's sad. And his mother, you know, at first got vicious, and I said, I'm only trying to help your son because I love him. I think he's wonderful. But he's got a good heart. He's a smart kid. 
He just he's just angry. And we right. we fixed it. I mean, this is sad. We know that, you know, your family had to flee. My grandfather came, went on the Underground Railroad in Poland to get my grandmothers out. Grandmother, both grandmothers out and my sisters out. So how do you survive after that? How do you get out of there alive without them finding you? Because, I mean, Hitler took the easy way out. He killed himself. Too bad. Too bad they didn't have a big stove for him. Right. Um, Yeah, I mean, I, I think... There, that people who have le- who fled Germany, like my both my families, um, mm. and I, I think of my grandmother as certainly because she had the you know she was Jewish, but then she also had the sister who was mentally ill, and I I think much of her survival or the way she survived after fleeing was to repress. Um, really try to repress everything, not to talk about it. And I think that was very common that, you know, to shut that down. And she became um, very controlling. I and mean, she couldn't she couldn't control all the horrible tragedy that happened to her and her family in Germany. So when she went to Switzerland, she controlled all the little things. Like her clock had to be set at exactly the same time every day. Like they had to go off at the same time. You know, the, mm. all the dings and the chimes and the cuckoo clocks. So she, you know, controlled what she could control. Mm. And I think that led her to become also very rigid. And it then it took sort of me going into a mental hospital and her having to revisit mm. all the things that she had repressed to finally, you know, understand why she had to do, you know, why she had to repress that, all those things and why she lived the way she did and how painful it was. And finally, in the end, coming to an understanding and an openness and really an empathy for herself mm-hmm. and for me as well. What about Lizbeth? Tell us about Lizbeth. It's the only person uh, I left out. Right, yeah, yes. Um, so... She also, I think it's very interesting, too, she really did survive by, mm. through skating. And, you know, what I said, this is talking about um, patients who exercise, you know, or walk or whatever generally do much better. I think that this that survived, and it was just sort of fortuitous that, a doctor mm. said, you know, she had weak ankles and she should try skating. And she absolutely loved skating and the physical activity of it. And she became Swiss national champion skater. And I think that movement and that sport really, it really did save her. I mean, she also struggled with anxiety and depression and her escape was through skating, and it was really her first love in her life. I mean, she was a champion skater, and then she became a coach, and then later she became a skating judge. And, you know, that was that was tremendous for her. She was really fortunate to have that. That's a beautiful picture of her skating. Beautiful yeah. picture of her. Yeah, That's what it says at all, yeah. Tall. If you could yeah. pick out one scene from this book, or one event in this book, which one would you say would be the most powerful? And I have I have hands out for this, by the way. There's a lot of people that I told about. I had to go to ENT yesterday to get my allergy test again, and I told the girl that does book clubs, and I said, you got to read this. You've got you got to bring this to your book club. You have to read it. You can't miss this. I mean, that, that's how powerful oh, this book is. Thank you. <laughs> and if they want well, to talk to me, to me. I'm always free. To do, I love book clubs. Like that's my favorite mm-hmm. type of event because um, I think that mm-hmm. you know, it's, I just I love to talk to people not just about my book but about some of these issues about around mental illness and shame and all of that. Um, so what scene would I pick out as the most mm-hmm. powerful? I guess. It was heartbreaking for me when I learned about mm-hmm. what they did with children. Um, mm-hmm. So there's a scene when Arnold finds, you know, the children who are being starved to death, 
um, which I cried. That was, was horrible. A way to kill the children without leaving any trace because they didn't inject anything, and it was it just mm. it was just such a horrible thing to read about, for me to read about that particular practice that was used in a number of different hospitals. Um, so I don't know. I I think in many ways that was the that was sort of the hard, that was the hardest thing to write. I think mm-hmm. emotionally. I don't. I don't know if it's any different today. That's what's scary, is that you somebody goes in for these for, for mental help, and you wonder if they're really getting the help or if they're just drugging them, and giving them medication so that they don't know what's there, um, which is really sad. My assistant principal when I grew up was a brilliant lady, and I had just spoken to her. Like a week before, we were talking about getting together. She was friends of the family. And the next thing I knew, she was in a, psych- uh, a mental ward, a, psych- a psychology ward um, in um, Columbia Presbyterian. And just before the nurse was going to put her on the phone with me, somehow we got disconnected. And I never could understand why she was there. And from what I understand, her sister put her there because they thought she was sick and they, the sister was going to inherit millions. That's what's even sadder. Oh, yeah, right. the true story. And Natalie was, she was brilliant. There was nothing wrong with her. It's just so sad. So how, what what do you hope people will get after reading this? What do you hope will change for people that are mentally ill? I mean, it's not a stigma. It happens. Everyone in the whole world gets 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 scared or afraid or something bothers them. And rather than hiding from it, if you deal with it, then you, it's better. What do you hope people will get after they read this this book? You got to read this, people. Seriously. Um, I guess it, uh, what you just sort of said is what I would hope for in terms of, you know, being open about it. And I think that it applies not just to mental illness, but it, you know, if we think about it in terms of some of the things that are going on in our our country in in terms of Mm -hmm. lack of understanding of the divisiveness and people blaming and it's your fault that this happened. No, it's your fault that that happened. And, you know, I would love to see people from different, the other different sides, whether it's about politics or mental illness, sit down Mm -hmm. and actually talk to each other and understand more than anything else is where are your fears coming from? What are you afraid that's going to happen because of your mental illness or because of your political leanings? You know, what are you afraid of? And, it, you know, people from the other side, whatever side that might be, it doesn't even matter, just to, to sit down, to talk to each other, to learn the other's fears. And it's really in understanding the fears that I think we can mm-hmm. become more united and have empathy for each other. And I guess, you know, Inga in the book and, and Sabine both had their own set of fears and both had, you know, really didn't understand the other person. And especially when Sabine's character understands where Inga's sort of controlling and con- her controlling nature and the repression and the coldness came from. I mean, it it really opens up, you know, the ability for the two of them to really love each other, which wasn't possible when there's fear in the way. I mean, fear does get in the way of love and understanding. And I I do think that, yeah, people could really sit down and speak to each other and stop blaming and start understanding where where the fear stems from. You know, maybe we can get along a little bit better. I agree with you, and I did do a show on fears with Dennis a while ago. We did. We did fears and, and how do you deal with them, but it bothers me because when I taught, you could tell a child's changing when they're very, very bright, and all of a sudden they become outspoken and disrespectful, and then you know something's wrong. Or a right. child that right. is usually quiet, usually not quiet, and usually talks out and gets very quiet. And it I guess I, I had this sense you just know. And those are the kids you don't yell at them. You just pull them aside and say, okay, what's wrong? And I'll never forget it. There was a little girl in the sixth grade, 
And she said, I said to her, this is not who you are. What's the matter? She said, I don't know how to tell you that my aunt is abusing me. And oh, wow. Yeah, she, was, she said, no, I'm scared. She said, what are you going right. to do about it? And she told me what the aunt did. I said, I'm going to have to report it. I'm going to have to save your life. This mother came in. She was ready to kill me. And then the girl told her, and I, the aunt did, she, I was right. I mean, what this kid was going through, and I said, you know, when you're doing dealing with children, child abuse, you have to report it because if you don't, you're going to have to live with the consequences. And this this no, is this is scary. Right. There are so many different character traits that people have, and and it bothers me because as I read this book, I could see that the doctors didn't care. There was no recourse, no no remorse, nothing, which really scares me. And before I forget, my new book is out, Population Zero. It deals with nine worlds that I created that no one would want to live in. And the people that are giving the reviews don't realize I made it up. The, the world of no no sun, no darkness, whatever, I made it up. I didn't do research. I just made it up the way I thought it would look. And they're criticizing me because I didn't look research the weather. I didn't because I wanted it to be my imagination. And it's, it talks right. about what you what you would you do if you lived in my world. Maybe you would start being coming together in this one. And I've right. got some mixed reviews. A lot of people don't understand why I wrote it. I don't really care. But right. before we end, I, I, I braved myself on this one. It's 76 pages of people got to read it. But what are three things that – are you going to write another book? Another another memoir, another story? Yes. Um, I have been starting, um, haven't gotten very far. There's a lot of things that have gotten in the way lately. But um, it's really about my journey with the paranormal. And, oh, nice. Um, uh, basically, I, I don't know what I've learned from it, but also some of, some, you know, some incredible stories and, you know, how my mind sort of became open to a lot of this, um, a lot of the phenomena that's out there and my experiences through that. And I'm very, you know, I'm very passionate about it in, in terms of learning about it. I'm very, very curious. And it's another, it's obviously very different from, you know, mental mm-hmm. illness, but it's one of it's interesting to me, at least. I would say people are becoming more accepting of, you know, paranormal experiences, but there's still a lot of people that mm-hmm. are like, no, that's absolutely, that that can't happen, that's not true. And, I, you know, it is. It's, it's another avenue that I want to share what my experiences are so, you know, maybe other people will then say, yeah, I've had either some experience or I know something. I used to mm-hmm. teach a class in, um, I mostly teach chemistry, but I used to teach a class called Science in the Media, and, you know, the, the students were allowed to pick any topics in science they wanted to learn about, and you know, the goal was that we would do it through a textbook, that we read articles, we watched documentaries, we, you know, read books. And the, the students were almost always interested in the paranormal. There's a lot of research out of the University of Virginia on all of these aspects of the paranormal. And initially, when we started talking about it, I mean, the students wouldn't talk much about it, you know, but it was... It always happened that after a little bit, you know, a little bit of time, a little bit of hesitation, mm. every student would reveal something. It didn't necessarily, it wasn't necessarily an experience that happened to them, but it was an experience they knew of to a cousin or an aunt or something. And mm. we're afraid as a society also to talk about that. Again, I think we're less afraid, but it's, it's a little bit like the mental illness thing. You know, we're afraid to really open up and talk about it. And with this as well, you know, people poo-poo it. They say it's nonsense and whatever. I mean, people are afraid to mm-hmm. admit they've had 
an experience. And in other cultures, it's so interesting. I spent a lot of time in Peru, and, you know, they don't have this shame around that at all. I mean, they think that, you know, the spirit, you know, the wind and the water has spirit, and they're mm-hmm. very open about these things. So, so anyway, that's my next my next it's, it's, uh, it's, adventure in writing. No, that that sounds very interesting. And I'm sure that people, there are a lot of people that tell me, you know, I see things or I talk to a psychic or whatever. There's a lot of debate also. And I thought about doing a broadcast on this, but I think it may be too controversial. Um, vaccine versus non-vaccine people. There are people oh, yeah. that are, yeah, I know, yeah. Um, my family in Florida all had the virus, bad cases of it. My family in New Jersey all had it. And I finally convinced my brother and everyone to get vaccinated, whereas my niece and her three children are not getting vaccinated. But my nephew did because I told him I was going to come to Florida and bat him over the head because I don't need him to get sick. Um, Right. They have various reasons why they don't want to get vaccinated, and their reasoning makes no sense. And I try to explain to them that with what's going on in the world today, and you go to too many places and you don't wear a mask and you don't social distance and you don't watch where you're going, you're going to get it again. And my niece just got over it again. Right, right. I know. She was, she's in school for respiratory therapy, and I've been writing the papers and helping her write them for the last month and a half. So I know what you go through. It's horrible. I mean, uh, the vaccine is difficult enough because I really got sick, but I'd still rather get the side effects than get the virus. But right. where can so everybody learn reasons? more about you and your work? Because this book, I'm telling you, I've got hands out for this. They're not getting it. They're going to have to buy it themselves. Seriously. Um, so I have a website. Um, also, obviously, the book's available on Amazon and, and any mm-hmm. bookstore. So, And I'm always thrilled if anybody wants to, you know, connect with me on my website or in any other way. I'm, You know, I'd love to talk and answer questions and hear what people think, hear what people think. Well, all I could say is that Gavin sent me this without asking permission. He doesn't ask me anything. He just sends them. He and doesn't? I, I, can, <laughs> I, I knew. Oh, I love him. This, he is so yeah, he's positive. He's amazing. And I, yeah. I know if I ask him something, it gets done the right way. But I said to him, right. okay, i got to interview this, 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 this author. You have to help me out here. Oh, he, I very rarely interview anybody whose books he sends because they're kind of horror or different. But this one I said, I can't miss pass up on this. But I want to oh, thank well, you thank so you. much. Oh, this thank is you. great. And when you get to write the next one, make sure I get it. Please, seriously. Okay. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, everybody. One small ask when you go outside, please wear a mask and be careful. Watch where you go, and if you're going into a store, they don't wear masks, you wear one because I do. Sylvia, thank you. Everybody have a great day, and bye. All right. Thank you, friends.